Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. We have a special episode of the podcast today featuring United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres. On Tuesday, September 17th, Guterres sat down with Mark Hertzgard of The Nation and Mark Phillips of CBS News for an interview conducted on behalf of the Covering Climate Now initiative. This is a global collaboration of over 250 news outlets, including the Global Dispatches podcast and UN Dispatch, to strengthen coverage of the climate story. The interview with Antonio Guterres was conducted on behalf of all participating members of this coalition, and I am very glad to be able to present the podcast version of it to you. If you are new to the podcast, welcome. Global Dispatches is a global affairs podcast that typically features my interviews with diplomats, NGO leaders, policy experts, journalists, academics, and more, all around topics of world concern. I encourage you to subscribe to the show and check out our robust archive on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And if you are listening to this episode contemporaneously, I'd also encourage you to check out an episode I posted earlier this week that gets into a little more detail about the UN Climate Action Summit itself. And later this week, I will have an episode that previews all the big stories that will drive the agenda around UN Week in New York. So after this episode concludes, I offer some of my own commentary about the interview. I've covered the United Nations for nearly 15 years, and I think Antonio Guterres' remarks in this interview are quite interesting for reasons that I explain after the interview concludes. Now, here is the Covering Climate Now interview with Antonio Guterres. I'm Mark Phillips from CBS News, and... I'm Mark Hertzgard with The Nation magazine and the Covering Climate Now collaboration. Tony Guterres, pleasure to be with you. <laughs> <laughs> Please go ahead. Mr. Secretary General, thank you for making this time for the interview with the Covering Climate Now consortium of news outlets around the world. You've been working very hard on the climate problem, calling it an emergency. People all over the world are scared. They want action. But you have called the Special Climate Action Summit next Monday because their governments are not delivering that action, at least not yet. What is the one thing that people listening to this interview right now can do to get their governments to lift their game, to act like this is the emergency that you say it is? Well, first, the general public uh, can mobilize uh, in different ways. Uh, we have seen the youth with a fantastic leadership in this regard. Um, uh, uh, we see uh, the civil society, the uh, non-government organizations. We see the business community, cities, regions that more and more uh, not only put pressure on their governments for climate action, and we have seen that also already in elections in different parts of the world, namely in Europe in the last uh, uh, European elections. But they are also themselves 
assuming climate action. We see cities reducing emissions. We see businesses um, uh, also reducing their emissions. We see asset managers divesting from coal or from fossil fuels uh, at all levels. We see the banks uh, having climate in their criteria uh, for uh, financial operations. We see rating agencies taking climate into uh, their uh, considerations. Central banks, uh, considering climate risks, need to be uh, assumed. So I see the whole of a society being more and more engaged in climate action. And what I want is to have the whole of society putting pressure on government to make governments understand they need to run faster because and we are losing the race. We're losing the race is why you call it an emergency, right? Yes. I mean, if you see the way uh, uh, we, the multiplication uh, of uh, natural disasters each time more intense with more devastating consequences. I just came from the Bahamas. It is appalling to see what I've seen, total destruction. Uh, drought in Africa, that is not only a problem for the populations and a problem for their well-being and forcing people to move, it's also more and more something that supports conflict and terrorism. Uh, Sahel is a good example of that. You see glaciers melting, you see corals bleaching, you see food chains being uh, put into question. Um, and... Uh, Clearly, uh, as we have uh, the highest temperatures ever, July was the hottest month uh, ever, the, these five years will be the hottest five years uh, in record. We see the rising level of the ocean uh, taking place, the highest concentrations ever of CO2 in the atmosphere. We need to go back three to five million years to get the same levels of CO2. And at that time, water level was 10 to 20 meters higher than what it is today. So we are really dealing with a very dramatic threat, not only to the future of the planet, but to the planet today. You mentioned civil society. One of the ideas that has really electrified civil society in the United States and overseas has been the Green New Deal, which, of course, you know about. Governments creating millions of jobs by investing in climate protection, climate mitigation, getting off of fossil fuels, and preparing for the impacts of those uh, gases. Here in the United States, uh, pretty much all of the Democratic presidential candidates back one form or another of a Green New Deal, but only one of those candidates uh, supports a Green New Deal that has uh, that meets the science. And we just reported today in The Nation magazine that uh, Bernie Sanders, the Democratic senator, the, the independent senator from uh, Vermont, is the one candidate who seems to recognize what the U.N., has been saying all along that any Green New Deal to work has to be global, that rich countries must help the developing countries to leave fossil fuel behind. That's been a theme of these climate summits since 1992 at the Earth Summit. Uh, Bernie Sanders' Green New Deal proposes to spend $200 billion for the U.S. to help less developing countries. Are you aware of Senator Sanders' proposal, and is that enough money is, do you think that is the kind of proposal that would get support here at the UN from developing nations? Well, the Paris Agreement was clear. In the Paris Agreement, there was a commitment by the developed countries from private and public sources to mobilize $100 billion per year to support the developing world, both in mitigation and adaptation. Mm -hmm. And um, obviously, it is essential that all countries, including the United States, play a role mm -hmm. in relation to this. Because without support to the developing world, 
even from the adaptation point of view, because right. the climate change is already there, of course, the impact can be absolutely devastating. So uh, I am very strongly in favor uh, of uh, the clarification of the commitments made in Paris to give to the developing world the guarantee that what was promised in Paris will be effectively delivered. But I think there are a number of other innovations that are essential, in my opinion. Um, Many times people give the idea that, uh, okay, to put a price on carbon means a cost for the people. Not necessarily. Even if you use the, uh, the, the most radical way, taxation, you can shift taxes from income, namely on payroll, to carbon. And that makes the middle class better uh, from the point of view of uh, their income situation. Um, uh, when we look at subsidies to fossil fuels, they usually are presented as a benefit to the population. But let's be clear. Subsidies are paid with taxpayers' money. I really do not like to see my money as a taxpayer going to boost hurricanes or to bleach corals or to melt glaciers. So I think it's more and more necessary to explain things to people in a way that people understand that the biggest cost is the cost of doing nothing. The biggest cost is the cost of going on, subsidizing fossil fuels, building more and more coal power plants, having less and less capacity to uh, understand that we are really facing a climate emergency. Just That's, to clarify, though, that did, are you familiar with Senator Sanders' proposal on the Green New Deal? Yes, of course, any uh, attitude from a country like the United States to increase and to boost finance to the developing world will be, of course, welcome. That doesn't mean that we want to interfere in the American elections. Of course not. Because that is something obviously one cannot do. You, you say that you have to get people and governments to listen to the arguments that you that you make, such as the one you just did. But you've also just listed a few minutes ago a whole range of dire consequences that we're already seeing. Hottest years on record, record rates of melting of polar ice caps, all of the other consequences, severe storms, that this is three years after the Paris Accords were agreed. Are you facing a situation of desperation now? Is that why you've had to call this conference, because the Paris Accords, there is no evidence at this point that they are actually producing the result that we all hoped they would. No, I'm not desperate. I am hopeful, because I see a lot of movement in societies, and I see more and more pressure being put in relation to governments. If you look at the most recent poll in the United States, you will see that the overwhelming majority of American citizens now consider climate change to be a serious threat. And consider that the government need to act in relation to that. But a and, government and that is the reason. A government that is, that's not acting. At but that, that is the reason why I'm hopeful. I mean, governments always follow public opinion everywhere in the world, sooner or later. And so uh, we need to stay the course. We need to keep uh, telling the truth to people and be confident that uh, political systems, especially democratic political systems, will in the end, sooner or later, deliver according to the needs that the population feels. The, the latest uh, coming out of Washington is that the administration may well limit the ability of places that you have cited as bright spots in the American context, California in particular, to lose the autonomy that it had to set lower pollution and emission standards than Washington would sanction. If that happens, isn't the, the American impediment to all of this international effort to mitigate climate change weakened even further? I think one of the best things of the U.S. society is the fact that it is a federal country and it is the fact that decisions are decentralized. So I'll be always very strongly in favor of keeping decisions on climate change as decentralized as possible. But in, in this case, the central government 
is restricting the ability of one of the decentralized governments, California. Which I believe goes against the tradition that the United States always had but it's of fact. decentralizing decisions for the states, which I think is a good thing. How much, more, how much easier would your job be if the U.S. position were different than, than it is now? I mean, it is clear that if uh, we would be able to have uh, uh, the U.S. strongly committed to climate action, if we would be able to have uh, countries, namely in Asia, uh, not uh, selling uh, coal power plants, uh, if we would be able to have uh, everybody already implementing um, what uh, the uh, Intergovernmental Panel mm. on Climate Change decided it was necessary, which means to have a trend to reach carbon neutrality in 2050 and to reduce emissions by 45% in 2030. If everybody was on board with that, oh, it would be much better. As it is not yet the case, it is our role to keep putting pressure to keep pushing and to keep trying to convince more and more people everywhere that uh, uh, this needs to be done. Because a the lot of nature is angry. Nature is angry. And nature, you cannot play tricks with nature. Nature strikes back. And we are seeing nature striking back. And this is a very serious problem. And there are other areas that sometimes people do not talk about. But for instance, public health. We see the combination of pollution and climate change killing 7 million people per year in the world. And we see tropical diseases moving north and becoming a threat uh, to countries in the developed world. As uh, the north warms. And so, I mean, it's not only the question of the glaciers that melt or the corals that bleach that sometimes people feel are a little bit more far away. No, it's things that are now related to our daily life. Storms in our own countries, even in the north. Drought in our own countries, even in the north. It's the case of my country. And uh, diseases that were completely forgotten uh, in uh, the developed world uh, with the risk of coming back. Uh, and this is something that uh, people should be more and more aware of. And this will be, I believe, a very strong instrument to put pressure on governments to act. Because but it's the life of people everywhere, including the north, that is being threatened. The last heat waves in Europe killed lots of people, especially elderly people. And elderly electorates are becoming more and more important everywhere. Do you still have hope of convincing the Trump administration of the what you would see as the error of its ways and its approach to climate change and in withdrawing from the international Hope accord? is the thing that uh, we should never lose. But in any case, uh, I think there is a work to be done with uh, the civil society, with the business community, with the asset owners, with the states, with the cities. And that work is also producing results that are very important. The, the fact is, though, that even with the pledges for the diminishing of greenhouse gas production that, that were made at Paris, much of the, none of that would bring the heating levels of the climate down to the desired 1.5%, I think, 3, three degrees, rather. We are still increasing emissions. We're still increasing emissions, so even that after... That is why we need to change the course, to reverse the trend. Even after Paris... Even after Paris. And, and how much of a problem is it that is Washington's position? Are you hearing other countries say, well, if they won't, why should we? No, I don't think that is the problem anymore. I think now clearly, uh, and I was in Katowice, it was a difficult moment, as you know, to, uh, Katowice was essential to implement the, the Paris Agreement. And in the end, it was possible to have everybody on board, including, by the way, the United States delegation. Uh, my feeling is more and more that countries understand that they cannot wait for the neighbor. 
they need to act by themselves because the risk is a, is a global risk. It's not a risk for one country or another. So nobody is, uh, in my opinion, able to escape. And so my feeling is that independently of uh, what one country decides, other countries will be able to more and more commit to the uh, Paris Agreement and to the increased ambition that we need for the Paris Agreement to be a reality. Simple question. You say emissions are continuing to increase. The temperatures are continuing to rise. All of the consequences, storms, etc., are continuing to happen in greater frequency. Is, is, has Paris failed? Not, because um, more and more countries are now taking measures that will reverse this trend. If you look at what happened in the European Union recently, only three countries opposed the um, strategy to have carbon neutrality in uh, 2050, and I believe that even that will be overcome. Uh, if we look at uh, how solar energy is growing uh, in countries like India or China, it's absolutely remarkable. If you see how even countries uh, in the small island development states are themselves taking measures to reduce emissions, even if their contribution is ridiculous, uh, you feel that there is a new wind of hope that is blowing. So I think we are getting to the top and we'll start coming down soon. If it would, quick follow-up. The if, top of emissions. Yes. If it's a wind of hope, it's a, it's a hot wind uh, that's blowing now and, and an increasingly hotter wind. Is it time to, if not give up, at least face the reality that these targets are not going to be met? There's no indication so far that the targets will be met and that the efforts of organizations like the UN should be more directed toward adapting to the world we're more likely to face and, if not give up, at least lessen the effort and redirect we need efforts to do both towards things. that. We need to support adaptation and support especially the countries that are in the front line of the negative impacts. But what the science tells us today is that these targets are still reachable. But that needs profound changes in the way we produce food, in the way we power our economies, in the way we organize our cities, in the way we produce energy. Um, and this is the kind of transformational changes that uh, I feel are needed. And I feel that more and more people, companies, cities, and governments are understanding that needs to be done. So a big thank you to the Covering Climate Now initiative for this interview. Uh, as I mentioned at the outset, I thought I'd offer some commentary about what I heard in that interview uh, based on you know my years of reporting on the UN. I've covered the UN for nearly 15 years through three secretary generals, three US presidents. Uh, and what I found so significant in Antonio Guterres' remarks, especially at the very beginning of the interview, was how he almost positioned himself apart from governments. And this is kind of significant when you think about it, because his position as UN Secretary General is you know, made possible by virtue of government support. He is selected for that role by the UN Security Council, more specifically by the five permanent members of the Security Council. But in his remarks to those reporters and in other remarks I've seen him make in recent weeks, he's sort of kind of almost sounds more like the head of Greenpeace or the head of Amnesty International. I mean, he sounds like if, if you're a part of uh, the 
global NGO community, you know, Kumi Naidu. He's a former head of Greenpeace, the current head of Amnesty International. In that interview, portions of that interview, he sounded a lot more like Kumi Naidu than the representative of governments of the world. So I think in that context, uh, his remarks were, were pretty bold when it came to trying to hold governments to account also sort of not very subtly or not subtly at all uh, when it came to the U.S., calling on state governments to step up where federal governments have failed. And more generally, trying to summon civil society to rise up and put pressure on their governments. And it's worth pointing out that he's not just sort of saying these things, sort of saying that civil society needs to step up and pressure their government, but around this UN Climate Action Summit and around events in New York in the coming week, he's actually put into place mechanisms to highlight and promote the voices of civil society. So for example, uh, this coming Saturday, there's a Youth Climate Action Summit. This will feature Greta Thunberg and other youth leaders, and will be a way, I think, to make like the moral cause for climate change, for again, holding leaders to account. And then the flagship event, of course, is the UN Climate Action Summit, in which he is you know, very directly summoning participation of civil society, of the general public, and you know, non-federal, uh, national, state-level actors, but also city and municipal and state-level officials to highlight their work in combating climate action. So, you know, just to sum up in rhetoric and in deed, uh, Guterres seems to be kind of putting his neck out in, in ways that are interesting uh, for a secretary general who, as I said earlier, is in his job just by virtue of the fact that the governments want him there. And if he crosses governments too hard, they may fire him, which they very well could when his term comes for reappointment in a couple of years. So this is all to say, uh, it seems that he is kind of staking his leadership, staking his future on being seen and actually being a leader on climate issues, which is itself interesting and significant. All right. Uh, we'll see you guys next time. As I said earlier, stay tuned for an episode coming very soon uh, that is a preview of the big stories that will drive the agenda around unga in the coming weeks thanks for listening bye